The Springboks won the 1995 Rugby World Cup and in this video you are going to get a front row seat to a retrospective review. You will hear from five Springboks in their own words as to how the 1995 World Cup was won. Let's get started. So the first two World Cups were held in Australia and New Zealand in 1987. Then the Five Nations co-hosted the 1991 event before South Africa hosted in 1995. Now don't forget South Africa was not able to participate in 1987 or 1991 because of isolation. But then Nelson Mandela was freed from prison, South Africa became a democracy and it was okay for us to play again. But before 1994, then-President F.W. de Klerk held a meeting with the International Rugby Football Board, as they were known in 1993, and convinced them to allow South Africa to host the 1995 tournament. But would we be ready? The box returned to international rugby in 1992, and I think it's fair to say we were not at our best. Four defeats in five tests. In 1993, the team had a new coach, Ian McIntosh, and new captain, Francois Pinard. Oh, and also a new South African Rugby Football Union president, Louis Late, who replaced Dr. Donny Craven, who had passed away at the beginning of 1993. They won three, lost three, and drew one of their tests that year. In 94, the Springboks won one, lost three, and drew one of their first five tests. Late had had enough, and Ian McIntosh was shown the door. Kitch Christie was brought in to do what he described as an ambulance job. Christie immediately recalled fly-half Joel Stransky. That's important, as you'll find out later in this video. Stransky repaid Kitch by scoring 22 points in his first test match back against Argentina. That equaled the Springbok record for an individual in a test match at the time. After winning that series, we were off to Europe to play Scotland and Wales in two test matches, and we won them both. The build-up to the 1995 World Cup featured political uncertainty too. There was a competition called the Super 10, which was played between the provinces of South Africa, Australia and New Zealand at the time. But New South Wales refused to travel to Natal, as it was still called in those days, to play against the Sharks, as they would later become known in Durban, because of fears of violence in that province. However, South Africa duly delivered a memorable tournament. Thursday, 25 May 1995. After a spectacular opening ceremony, which featured new president Nelson Mandela, and you could clearly hear the crowd cheering Nelson Nelson, South Africa kicked off the tournament against the world champion Wallabies in Cape Town. Now, it's worth noting that in the opening 20 minutes, South Africa actually looked a little bit nervous. The Wallabies scored first, and they had established a 13-9 lead just on the stroke of half-time. But that's when things changed. Despite struggling in the lineouts at first, the Springboks began to grow in confidence. And shortly before the break, Peter Hendricks rounded the great David Campisi to score what would become a famous try and make sure the Springboks had the lead at half-time. Hendricks actually did not ground the ball as he crossed the line, but referee Derek Bevan ruled it to have been the case, which is a shame because Hendricks wanted to move closer to the posts to create an easier conversion opportunity for Joel Stransky. And as it turned out, Stransky did miss the conversion, but it didn't matter. We were 14-13 up at halftime. 
And then in the second half, we really clicked into gear. And in a move that we'd actually seen the year before against England, also at Newlands, Rudolf Strauli picked the ball up from the base of the scrum, went to his right, popped it up to Joost van der Westhuizen, who then popped it in the opposite direction to Joel Stransky, who bulldozed his way through and scored a memorable try. Newlands went nuts and the game was over. Stransky scoring 22 points in a 27-18 victory. South Africa's World Cup campaign was up and running. 30 May and the box were back in action this time against Romania also at Newlands and the Romanians had already taken a hiding 34-3 at the hands of Canada in their opening match. Captained by Adrian Richter, the Springboks managed to win 21-8, but if we're honest, it wasn't the best performance we've ever seen from the South Africans. Nevertheless, a win is a win, and it was two wins from two. And then came what would become known as the Battle of Butte Erasmus. The Springboks would take on Canada in a match that we actually had to win in order to make sure that we topped Pool A. And Canada, believe it or not, still had a chance to qualify as well if they could pull off the upset. So we had to be careful. Kickoff was delayed after floodlight failure in Port Elizabeth, but South Africa managed to establish a good lead at half-time. Richter scoring two tries against the Canadians on this occasion, just like he did against Romania. That gave him four for the tournament. Mark Ellis would score six for the All Blacks against Japan in a 145-17 record thrashing. So there went Adrian Richter's try-scoring records. 17-0 to South Africa at half-time, but only 20-0 at full-time. But the match became known for something far different. And that was an all-out brawl. I'll let Peter Hendricks describe it to you. During the game, there were a lot of tackles off the ball and bumping. And I remember um, running towards the side and I came in to tackle their winger. I can't remember his name. Um, and he... We grabbed each other, I ran into him and we grabbed each other by the collar and we were standing against the advertising boards and he tried to push me into the advertising board and all of this that I'm telling you happens like in 11, 12 seconds. Okay, so having build up and playing the test and <laughs> being full of testosterone at that stage of your life, um, when he tried to push me into the advertising boards, I turned him around and I, and I held him by the collar um, and then Reese, the fullback, came in and he, he came and he hit me from behind. And uh, I mean, at that stage, I was just provoked. And, and, and I'm, I will admit, I'll take the responsibility that I lost a little bit of cool because when you're standing there and somebody hit you from behind, you're just furious. And I turned around, but we, I still had the winger by the collar and he had me. And I turned around and then James Dalton came running in and he just ran Reese off me into the advertising boards and James Dalton never threw a punch or anything like that but he's the player who ran in so unfortunately but uh, yeah for him um, and then uh, James having dropped the guy with, when he tackled him sort of into the boards I turned around and I was furious I was looking for this guy who, who came to eat me from behind and um, the, the winger had me by the collar so I couldn't get down to eat him <laughs> so at that stage, I just let the kick go, and the kick was missed, uh, fortunately, because I think if that kick connected, there would have been big trouble. So the kick was missed, and then uh, all hell broke out, and the guys just came in running, eating from all sides, and then Leroux came in, and he dropped, um, I think, Reese the fullback. He dropped him, and uh, the winger still had me by the collar, so I threw a, a left punch, which I'm very proud of. I think it was a good one that connected properly. 
Uh, and that was, uh, yeah, so then the fullback dropped here by my feet. And like I said, this was madness in 11 seconds. And um, I, I, I was still furious. I wanted to really, in the context, kill the guy who hit me from behind. And uh, he was lying here, so I kicked. And I kicked him against the neck. Um, but as I kicked, I realized cameras, and then I started to come to my senses. Okay, so it it's, was like another proper kick as well <laughs> for the furiousness I had at that stage. But in any case, so everybody hit, and then um, when things calmed down, uh, Reese the fullback and James Dalton, they got uh, red carded and they got sent off. And then... Uh, the next morning, uh, Rudolf Strauli came to me and he said to me, um, I'm going to be cited. And out of the whole fight with everybody throwing punches and that, I was the only guy um, who was cited out of the whole thing. Hendricks and James Dalton were then brought before a disciplinary committee. And it was quite farcical, to be honest. But don't take it from me. Here's James Dalton. So first of all, you make the statement of what was the process like there was no process that was that was the problem with it so after the game there was a committee of two french guys and an englishman with a translator present for the french guys so a hearing should be where you you ventilate and and debate and discuss etc that the, the mediator or the, the translator was not used once by both Frenchmen, in fact, to try and interpret what I was trying to say in English. So it, 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 was, it was disgusting, to say the least. And playing everything in slow motion, which is not real, was also... So I was I was on a hiding second to nothing. They 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 had made up their minds that they were going to suspend me. That was my fate. No matter what I said or did not say, it was it, it was what it turned out to be, a suspension for me. Do you really know your rugby? Do you always get your predictions right? Why not make some money then? Open an account right now with Tic Tac Bets and get up to 2,000 Rand and 20 spins with your first deposit. The link is appearing on your screen and I'll also put it in the description area. Please note that this is an affiliate link and I will make a little commission on it. Winners know when to stop. National Responsible Gambling Program. Toll-free helpline 0800-006-008. No persons under the age of 18 years are permitted to gamble. But with Hendricks out, that meant Chester Williams was called up to the Springbok squad for the remainder of the World Cup. And that was significant for four reasons. Number one, Chester was the first choice wing for the Springboks in 1994. Number two, Chester was left out of the 1995 World Cup squad because of a hamstring injury. Number three, given South Africa's history, Chester's place in the team as a non-white player was of political significance. And indeed, social significance. And number four, he was actually part of the marketing campaign before the tournament to build up hype and excitement. So with him not actually being there, it was a real blow not only to the player and the team, but also to the organisers. Chester made an immediate impact, scoring four tries against Western Samoa in the quarterfinal. It was a Springbok record at the time. But the box did not emerge unscathed from that quarterfinal. Andre Hubert suffered a bad, bad hand injury after a brutal tackle from Samoa's Mike Umanga. It actually meant that Andre had broken his hand. 
he ended up wearing a hand brace or a glove for the remainder of the tournament. Here's the story in Andre's own words. There was a guy from Ireland, I can't remember his name. He kind of said to me, he, he saw in those days that I broke my hand and I received the fax with him from him earlier in the week at the receipt, arriving at the hotel. Said, Listen, they got a kind of hockey game there in Ireland where they use these kind of gloves. And you would like to send me one which will help your protection. And also I said, yeah, thank you very much. That'll be great. You know, it'll definitely help with the bumps and bruises. Or... And Saturday morning arrives, no glove yet. You know, and as I can see, you know, the time's running out. I haven't even had time to train with this glove. And eventually this glove arrived at about, I think, at about half past 12 at the hotel. And I think we were leaving at quarter to two, two o'clock for the game. Because the game, those, I think it was at three o'clock. So eventually this glove arrived and then I fitted it on and it fitted like a real glove as you know, <laughs> as you would say and it was perfectly fit and as you know the game was delayed I think by an hour, hour and a half but you know the guards are looking on to us and we managed to pull that game off. South Africa took on France in the semi-final in Durban and coach Kitch Christie came up with what would become a masterstroke. He moved Mark Andrews, one of the world's premier locks at the time, to eighth man. And it's quite an entertaining story as to how it actually happened. I'll let Mark describe it to you. <laughs> it was it was probably one of the, the, the lowlights and highlights of my sporting career in that um, we were we were staying at the Sunnyside Hotel in Johannesburg and we just played against Samoa. We'd given a couple of days off. We went home for three days. Um, Joel Stransky was my roommate. And uh, we flew back and I remember we were lying in the room and uh, next thing the phone rang. We, we just got cell phones in those days, but things still happened by your by your hotel phone. And Joel picked it up and he was like, uh, yes, Mornay. Um, yes, Mornay, Mark's here. Um, okay, I'll tell him. Okay, I'll tell him to come to your room. Put the phone down. Now, on a Sunday night, if you were in the test side and management called you to their room, it meant that you were going to get dropped because they would tell you before they had the press thing on Monday morning. If you weren't in the side and they called you to come to the manager's room, that meant that they were going to break the good news to you that you were, you'd were you make the test side. So you can imagine, just bad against Samoa in the quarterfinal, won it, and I get called on Sunday night to go to morning morning to his room. And I'll never forget, walking down that passage, and I had that feeling, all this joke, I had that feeling like an old schoolboy and you've been caught doing something, and you're walking down that passage to the headmaster's office. And you know you're gonna get a caning. Walked then I stood in front of his door, and I was just like thinking, "She's like, is this the end of my World Cup dream? Is this like my family all coming up for for the semi-final to Durban was? And um, even though we were in Joburg, and I was like, oh. then she knocked on the door, it's coming. The door opened the door, and I'll never forget. There was Morning Duplessis sitting on the one side, Kiss Christie in the middle. And then Casey Pino was sitting on the side. He was our backline coach. And uh, Kish, not being one to mince his words, looked at me and he called me Marky in a diminutive. I don't know why I was Marky. I was one of the biggest guys on the side, but he called me Marky. So he looked at me and he said, Marky, can you play flank? I looked at him and I was like, no, coach, well, I, no, I can't play flank. Now, I remember we had Ruben Kruger, one of the greatest, hardest flankers in world rugby, and Francois Pinal capped another flank. So, like, were they going to drop Ruben? Like, I didn't quite understand the question. I said, no, coach, I, I can't play flank. He said, are you sure? And I started to think, yeah, no, I can't play flank. Sorry, coach, I've never played it before. 
Said it's a pity. Okay, you can go. I'm like, what the hell is all that about? I walked out, walked back to the passage, and I was confused. Walked in the room, and Joel sat up in the bed, and he said, and? I said, geez, Joel, I don't know. What do you mean? Like, he said, but are you in a yard? I said, I don't know. So what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, the coach asked me if I can play flank. He said, what did you say? I said, no. He went, oh. I said, well, what, what, what do you mean, oh? He said, hey, Mark, you know he wants to play Kubis and Hannes. It's always been his main locks. He's basically gave you an option to play flank in, in the side, either come off the bench or, or like, even though we didn't have bench players in, play a bit on flank. And you said no. And I was like, oh, geez. Then I'll stuff that on. Anyway, I was sitting on the bed, still trying to absorb everything that happened. And next thing, the phone rang again. Mornay, <laughs> Joel, Joel, yes, he's still there. Yes, I'll send him. So obviously, what, I mean, what do you think? No, nah, I've said no, nah, I can't play a flank. I said they're going to break the bad news to me that I've been dropped. Walked on their passage, now nah, it's like, same feeling, but now you know you need expelled by the headmaster and get a cane. Knocking that door, open up, same like sitting there. And uh, kid says to me, Marky, can you play eighth man? Now, all this joke, I said, I know I'm a tight forward and supposed to be doff, but I'm not that doff. I said, yeah, coach, I can play eighth man. So he goes, can you really play eighth man? So I said, yeah, I played it at school. And I was proper. My favorite position. And he turned around to Mourner and he said, and, and I've, I've discussed this with Mourner and he vaguely remembers it, but he's not 100% sure the memory. Obviously, it's a huge thing in my life. It wasn't so much in his. And he tapped Mourner in the leg and he said, Mourner, I told you. Look, man, he said, you were a great Springbuck eighth man. He said, Mark's built like you. He says, Mark, you, you're going to be a great eighth man. I said, gosh, I'll be a great eighth man. He said, okay, thanks, man. He said, but I'm not a bad luck either. He said, thanks. Walked out, closed the door, and I was like, Jesus, now what's this happened? You know, walked down the passage, get back. Now I don't know what, like, what do you think? I walk in, Joel's pacing around the room. He's even sitting in his bed, and I walk in, he goes, like this face, he goes, and? I said, I don't know, Joel. He says, Joel, what do you mean you don't know? Are you in the side or you out the side? Are you playing? I said, Joel, I don't know. He said, well, what happened? I said, well, the coach asked me if I can play with Matt. He said, what did you say? I said, yes. He said, can you? I said, no. He said, well, why do you say yes? I said, Charlie, you told me he's not going to play me lock. He's going to play Anderson Kubis. I already said, no, I can't play flank. So I put another position. The eighth man so I said, yes. True as God. The next morning, they announced the Springbok side of play against France in the World Cup for a semifinal. And Mark Andrews is eighth man. I nearly cocked myself. <laughs> so I actually went after, after they announced the, at breakfast, they announced the, 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 the side. Um, I can still remember, like, guys, like, turning around their chairs, like, looking at me like they just realized who the team kleptomaniac was. Like, so he's eighth man. And I was, I was like, I was like dumbfounded. And I actually walked up to, to Kitch and my nerve broke. And I went to him and I said, Coach, I've got to be honest. Bro. But, but I said, I've got to be honest. I last played eighth man under 15. So I, I don't really know how to play eighth man. And he went, you know what? You'll be great. And he said, guys, we'll leave for training half an hour later. Uh, Rudolph, Francois um, and Ruben and Mornay. We're just going to work with Mark and go through all the moves off the back of the scrums and the lineouts. Thanks. And that is it. Ended up playing in the semi final against France. And he said to me, it's only against the French because they had uh, Benazi, the eighth man. They had Olivier Ruma. They had Merle. They had Caban. Four jumpers. And we only had me because there's myself and Kurbis. And Kurbis wasn't announced to be the biggest jumper in the world. So. It was basically just me, I mean, and Rudolph was a big boy. So he wanted to get guys in the lineup. So he wanted to bring in Hannes. So he said to me, just for the semi final. 
And then it works so well by default. It's not that any other. And then for the final, he had the same chat with me. I was like, Coach, please, but you can't. You can't. He said, Mark, they'll never expect it. They'll think it's a ploy and it's going to work. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not consider becoming a patron? You can click on my Patreon link. I'll put it on the screen as well as in the description box. And there will be great benefits for members. Now, Durban is a city that historically gets summer rains. But on this winter's day, it was as if it was monsoon season. Referee Derek Bevan seriously considered calling off the match. There were concerns over player safety and the pitch was seriously waterlogged. After several hours delay and several inspections, Bevan eventually decided to go ahead with the match. This was significant because if the match had been called off, France would have advanced to the final because South Africa had an inferior disciplinary record. Remember Peter Hendricks and James Dalton. South Africa won the match 1915 and advanced to the final. Bevan, by the way, was actually offered a gold watch by SAFU president Louis Late, but to his credit, Bevan declined the watch. Earlier you heard me talk about Mark Ellis and his six tries against Japan, but the All Blacks had another wing who was making a serious impact at the Rugby World Cup. 20-year-old giant wing Jonah Lomu. And when I say giant, this guy looked more like a flank who could help out in the lineouts and, of course, in the rucks and malls with some ferocious power. Instead, that ability and those skills were transferred to the left wing. And he also scored six tries in the Rugby World Cup. Four of those came in the semi-final against England, where he literally ran over Mike Catt to score one of them. There is no doubt that New Zealand started the Rugby World Cup final in 95 as the favourites. Maybe not outright favourites, South Africa obviously stood a chance, but if we're honest, the All Blacks were probably 60-40 favourites going into that match at Ellis Park. In the week leading up to the final, all the talk was about Jonah Lomu, understandably. How would the box cope? Well, Lomu received the ball eight times in that final, and all eight times he was stopped by the brilliant Springbok defence. There was no way through for the big man, nor was there any way through for the New Zealanders. Ruben Creer actually scored a try in that final, but referee Ed Morrison ruled it out. Apparently, Ruben was held up. And so it was 9-9 at full time. That meant the match had to go to extra time. And in the additional 20 minutes of play, and this is quite a fun story, Joost van der Westezen and Joel Stransky overruled a call by Captain Francois Pinar. That's not really the kind of thing that you should be looking to do. But in this case, it meant that Joost passed to Joel Stransky in space, who went ahead and slotted what would become the most iconic of drop goals in the history of rugby. A magnificent drop goal from Joel, and that was what ultimately won the Rugby World Cup for the Springboks. The ball flew so high that it was actually higher than the poles at the moment that it went over. It's a moment that has immortalized Stransky in South African sporting history. Here he is in his own words. Well, it was, um, you know, it was 12-all. We were, we had a scrum in a good position. I think it was around about the 22, just off to the right. And big blindside. And we had a couple of great blindside moves. You know, we had a couple of moves we, we'd scored it with the one we called actually we'd scored against Australia with. And it's, um, you know, when you got the likes of Eust and Andre Joubert and James Small on the outside there, or I think it was still, I think James was still on the field at that point. Um, 
and 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 you've got you know a guy like Rudolf Australia who can pick up off the base and accelerate around the corner. You you have a massive threat, and you can stretch defenses. And you know we'd stretch them and then throw in the inside pass, or we'd stretch them and then throw in the outside pass. Um, and and we 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 call the move to go to the blind side, and they'd obviously studied our our our, our game, our moves because as soon as um, the scrum was set, the way they stood up, they lined up to defence. It was clear as day they knew what we were going to do, and they had all those bases covered. But what that does is it leaves space on the open side again. And uh, so I, I, I called to yes, I said cancel, you know, send the ball back this way. Well, we've got to go this side. There's not often you you overrule Francois Pinot's call, so we um, he looked at me a little bit surprised, and I said, and, and you know, the the noise and the crowd and the and the the huge volume, it's quite hard to communicate, and uh, we did a lot of it by hand signal, and and he didn't uh, he cancelled the move and sent the ball back, and Kitchen had me working on the drop goal, so um, I was hitting them sweet, so. It's just a matter of making sure, you know, it, no one charged it down. And fortunately, no one did. South Africa won the Rugby World Cup by beating New Zealand 15-12 in the final. And who can ever forget President Nelson Mandela famously wearing Francois Pinot's number six jersey on that day. Now, the reality is that the host nation actually dominated that final. In my opinion, we were on top for most of that match. And honestly, having watched it back a few times, the All Blacks only broke through a first-time tackle twice in the opening 20 minutes. And that was pretty much the end of them as far as their attacking prowess in that final was concerned. For the record, there were accusations on the part of the All Blacks that they had been food poisoned. Their head coach, Laurie Maines, even hired a private investigator to try to get to the bottom of it. The investigations established that a lady had been hired by a hotel, the very same one where the New Zealanders were staying, a few days before the Rugby World Cup final. She disappeared after most of the players began vomiting and suffering from diarrhoea. The mysterious woman became known as Susie. I've read and heard several stories about the food poisoning incident and Susie, and my honest conclusion is that the players were indeed food poisoned. We don't know if it was deliberate or not, and the reality is that you could go eat out at a restaurant and eat some bad fish and suffer food poisoning. So yes, it could have been deliberate, but it could also have been coincidental. It is worth noting though, that at the time of the final, the players had all recovered. None of them were playing while actually food poisoned. And as someone who has actually suffered food poisoning myself, because that's what happens when you eat dodgy chicken from Spur, guys, (laughs) the recovery is actually quite instant. You go to bed feeling terrible, and you wake up the next morning feeling as good as you felt two days ago. Going into the tournament, we were one of the teams that could have been considered among the favourites, but we were not the outright favourites. I think that that tag belonged to Australia, the defending champions, and the Five Nations champions, England. So going all the way and winning against the odds made it all the more sweeter. And it also meant that we joined New Zealand in being the only team to win the first Rugby World Cup that we participated in. Let's be honest, guys, it's unlikely that a third team is going to join us. Given where our country was just a few years earlier, and probably on the brink of civil war, it was an absolute miracle to see the Springboks go all the way, win the World Cup, and unite the nation. It has been said that when handing over the Webb Ellis Cup to Francois Pinot, Nelson Mandela thanked him for what him and his team had done for the country, to which Francois replied, No sir, thank you for what you have done for our country.